Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Eagle Eye today. Every week, we have exclusive interviews with your favorite BC student athletes, professors, alumni, and more. We're your hosts, Eamon O'Malley and Jack Bergamini. Today's exciting because we have a special guest, Clayton Truder. Clayton is a BC alum and is also the author of a recently released book titled Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. Clayton, can you give us a little more background on yourself and how it came about for you to write this book? Well, thank you guys, first of all, Jack and Eamon, for having me here today. Um, I, uh, I grew up in Vermont. I uh, went to college at the University of Vermont, bounced around for a while, decided I wanted to go to grad school in history, and ended up at Boston College and spent a number of years there. Uh, took me quite a while to get my dissertation done, but uh, I was in, in and around BC off and on for close to a decade, so I'm very, very familiar with, uh, with your guys' environments, uh, and I uh, eventually defended my dissertation in 2018, and um, I now teach at uh, Norwich University, which is a college in uh, Northfield, Vermont. And in terms of how the, how the project got going, it started out as my dissertation at BC. Uh, it's my, my advisor, Lynn Johnson, is still a fantastic professor in the history department at Boston College. Uh, my areas of interest were U.S. urban history and American cultural history, and I came to her with the idea of writing a dissertation, broadly speaking, about the impact of professional sports franchise relocations on American cities. And she said, that's all well and good, but it will take you 50 years. Pick a particular city, focus in on it, that's emblematic of the themes you want to discuss, and there's no city uh, that, that really goes into this more so than Atlanta, which is essentially invents the model that every city that wants to get big league sports now uses. Atlanta rolls out the red carpet to all the major leagues, says we're open for business during the 1960s, publicly finances um, two stadiums, lures in all four major leagues in a six-year period, and set off the arms race that continues to exist now among cities to keep pro sports franchises or lure them from other cities. So how did you, you talk about Atlanta, like how did you come to that realization that Atlanta was the perfect city? Like, did you have that previous Just, background with it or were you a baseball fan? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of every sport. I mean, I was a huge okay. BC sports fan when I was there. I mean, I grew up in Vermont. There wasn't a lot of, in the way of like major college football and stuff. So being, you know, living across the street from, from a football stadium was fantastic. So I got really into BC football, which is just part of a broader fandom that I have in terms of sports. In terms of picking Atlanta, I had no connection to Atlanta whatsoever. Um, I think I, I'd been there a couple of times. My uncle lived there for a while in the early 90s. So that was the only Vegas connection I had to the city. Um, I, I was looking for a city that had either gone out and sought out pro sports from all the different uh, major leagues and lured them to town or a city that had fought to keep teams uh, had fought to keep teams with all of these uh, cities trying to lure and um, take them away. I ended up staying with Atlanta just because it seemed like the best example of a city that had absolutely nothing and then went out and got teams in all of the different uh, professional leagues. That's great. Yeah. And um, I mean, it sounds so interesting, like everything you're saying about building that kind of sports franchise within a city. Um, Cause that, I mean, that can be a huge part of the economic kind of uh, growth of, of any city really. Um, what are some of those kind of features that you kind of really researched or um, found like, Oh, this, you know, specific thing, like this is what helps attract fans this is what helps attract revenue, all these things um, to kind of build up the teams and build their popularity. Well, that's actually kind of a myth that sports are a driver of economics. I mean, if you look at a pro sports franchise, it looks like a big business on the outside because 
because it's high profile. But most major pro sports franchises bring in less revenue each year than a super Walmart would out, out in like the suburbs, the one that has like a grocery store, like you can get your tires changed there, the actual Walmart. So they're a much smaller economic actor than a lot of people think they are. Um, they're very, people see them around the country because they're in the newspaper every day. But as a civic investment, they're not really a great way to build up an economy. Generally speaking, what they do successfully is redirect spending within a marketplace rather than, than, than creating new economic growth in a location. Um, I would say cities that are doing it for the economic purpose, that, that tends not to be a good idea. If a city has a strong cultural tie to a particular sport, it may then make, make sense to invest in a stadium. Um, some people are kind of, I would say, fundamentalists in one respect or another on this question. They either think every city should go out and spend lots of money on stadiums. Other people think it's never a good investment. To me, it's, it's for each community to have a conversation uh, itself to figure out whether or not this is a, a reasonable civic expenditure. Um, in, in terms of economic development, these teams have relatively few employees compared to a lot of major employers. They tend to impact only a couple of dozen businesses around them. So if you look at the case of Atlanta, the reason they got pro sports was really not as an economic driver. Um, the, the leaders saw it as a source of prestige for the city, that Atlanta's name would appear in the newspaper alongside Chicago and Los Angeles and New York and be considered thus a de facto peer of those cities. The city leaders in the 60s also saw it as a unifier. Atlanta was a city that had significant racial divisions. It had divisions between suburb and, uh, and, and city. It had lots of transplants from other parts of the country who were trying to fit into the, the, the culture of, of the region as well. So you had a lot of civic divisions and the city leadership saw it as what they called either the Atlantis axis or its center of gravity, that this would end up bringing people together. It, it didn't quite turn out as expected. Uh, in many ways, my book is a a story of the futility of trying to use pro sports as a driver of social improvement. Okay. So, I mean, you talked about how the owner wanted prestige. So in that aspect, did it work? Like prestige as in like the sports cities like Boston, New York, or LA? Because when I think of sports cities, Atlanta doesn't come to mind super quickly. So do you think it worked? Well, that is, that is, that, that is a key to the book, certainly. The, the, the mayor, the civic establishment, they certainly had this idea that it was going to make Atlanta seem more significant. I guess in a, a very superficial way, it did simply by having Atlanta's name appear in the standings alongside these other cities. But in the short term, at least, Atlanta's teams all tended to struggle on the field. They, they didn't draw particularly well at the box office. The poor attendance that all of Atlanta's teams faced during the 60s and 70s became something of a national joke. Uh, and helped get it this Loserville moniker. The team that, that Atlanta got all of this pro sports so quickly, it proved very difficult for the city to digest. And the teams both struggled because they had novice owners who really didn't know what they were doing, and also had fans who proved indifferent to it. Um, the people who were transplants to Georgia were primarily interested in the teams from where they were from originally. If you go to a sporting event in Atlanta to this day, you're going to see a lot of uh, hats for Boston teams and New York teams, Chicago teams, because there's lots of people who end up in Atlanta because it's a it's a corporate hub for the region. Yeah, in, in the in the, in terms of the locals, it's not like they just started being interested in sports simply because there were guys wearing Atlanta across their chest. College football obviously was wildly popular there. High school football, stock car racing would draw a hundred thousand people several times a year.
There are not many sporting events that could do that. If you look at what's happening this weekend, the Masters is happening this weekend. There would be 50,000 people in the 1960s that would turn out for the practice round of the Masters. The Braves had trouble drawing 10, 12,000 people to many of their weeknight games. So there are all kinds of sporting opportunities in the region that were popular well before the big leagues got there. And the appearance of big league sports didn't mean that people were simply going to drop them. Especially in Boston, it feels like all the sports teams are always packed. Like you, you go to a Celtics or a Red Sox game or Bruins, and it's the stadium is always filled. But when you have, you know, a city that's kind of more developing, especially early on, when I think you mentioned in the book before, like the stadium would be empty. Um, and how do you kind of fix that? That's that's a real um, kind of issue. It's it's very difficult in the sense of if you look at New York or Boston or Philly or Chicago there's just such a sense that, that these are these uh, local institutions of great significance in a way that's just not the case with Atlanta's teams historically. But if you're a Red Sox fan, it's very, I mean, I grew up in a family of Red Sox fan. My dad was a Red Sox fan. His dad was a Red Sox fan. His dad was a Red Sox fan. So there's this just strong multi-generational oftentimes family connection to the teams that didn't exist in Atlanta and a lot of these other new Southern or Western markets, Phoenix, Tampa, Jacksonville, New Orleans, Houston, um, people treated it like they would treat any other consumer product, that this is one possible way to spend your discretionary income, as opposed to having the strong emotional attachment to the Red Sox or the Bruins or the Yankees or the Rangers or whomever. How would you say, like, today, have Atlanta sports, like, evolved? Are they more so, like, important or successful than they were back in the 60s when they first started? I would assume so, but, like, how do they stack up against these other teams? They're tremendously more successful now. I mean, my book came out a few months after the Atlanta Braves won the World Series. Oh, yeah. So when, when advertisement for my book started coming out, I got tons of messages. Aha, your book has been proven <laughs> wrong, people. Um, well, my book is really about the 60s and 70s. I mean, I guess in a contemporary sense, that's true. Atlanta, the Atlanta Braves are very good. Atlanta United in um, MLS, won a championship a couple of years ago. They've drawn very well. And the Georgia Bulldogs football team won the college football national championship. So you've had a lot of success in a short period of time there. Um, I would say that Atlanta's market tends to be a bit of a fickle one. The, the teams are all drawing very well right now. Whether or not that will continue to be the case, I think it depends on how successful the teams are. With the Red Sox, for example, it doesn't matter. Really, from about 1967 onward, when they had the impossible dream season, whether the Red Sox are good or not, they're one of the best drawing teams in the American League. The Bruins have historically excellent attendance, one of the best draws consistently in the NHL. The Celtics have actually historically been a little more up and down in terms of attendance. And until Robert Kraft bought the Patriots, they were very much the poor relation. But, um, if, I mean, broadly speaking, the relationship of New Englanders to those teams is very different than what happens in Atlanta, which is more... What have you done for me lately? Yeah, um, and also oh, another kind of major point that you made in the book was um, kind of the racial divide in Atlanta um, between you'd have like a black majority in the cities, um, but also then kind of a, a white suburb. Um, how, did, do you think Atlanta sports kind of bridged that gap at all? Or how did that impact um, the racial divide? In terms, of, in terms of bridging that gap, I would say yes. And that's largely the result of the rapid expansion of the black middle 
class in Atlanta. There's no place with a higher per capita income for, for African-American citizens on average than Fulton County, which Atlanta is the center of. Atlanta has a very large black middle class, and it happens for a few different reasons. First of all, in the city, there's a significant accumulation of black-owned capital beginning in the 1920s that just grows and grows and grows and grows. But once in 1973, a man named Maynard Jackson, the city's first African-American mayor, gets elected. And he puts in, pay, in place a very significant affirmative action program in the city, which um, pushed a lot of city jobs towards African-American uh, workers and helped expand the middle class in part because of that. Atlanta also very notably has a well-known airport. I believe it's the busiest airport in the country. Um, one, of the, one of the things that helps expand Atlanta's black middle class is a quota system was put in in terms of contractors when they were expanding it in the 1970s. So overnight you have a lot because a third of the contractors had to be Af have African-American ownership. Overnight you create dozens of uh, black millionaires in Atlanta because of this. So suddenly there is a rapid expansion in the number of people with the capacity to afford uh, to go to sporting events. And if you look at in terms of uh, interests of black fans nationally, as well as in Atlanta, during the 1960s and 70s, uh, both basketball and football pass baseball as the most popular sport among African-American fans. And as more, um, more black families were able to afford to attend games, one saw changes in the demographics, at, particularly at Hawks and Falcons games. If you go to them now, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a significant group of uh, African-American fans at uh, both of those games in a way that wouldn't have been the case when the teams got there. And I think in many ways that played a, a prominent role in solidifying the strength of the fan bases in the cities, which were largely suburban, uh, largely white when they first got to town. Yeah, no, that's, that's certainly interesting. I just want to talk about, just go back a little bit, just the process writing the book, because I'm really interested in that. So you, you have this city, you have Atlanta, but how do you think that you want to, you know, find this idea about how how it like all went wrong in the beginning like how 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 are you able to investigate that how are you able to find all these facts just become so knowledgeable about this well thank you for the kind words but uh a lot of it starts at uh, o'neill library honestly i mean looking wow. at uh, microfilm of uh, the atlanta constitution the atlanta daily world which was the which is the oldest black owned newspaper in the country they have a nice archive of that, of that at o'neill um, went over to Harvard to look at the Atlanta Journal, which was the other major paper in the city. So I spent literally years looking at newspapers from the city, just going day after day after day after day during these eras and seeing how these events were covered. Then I went to a lot of specific archives. There were, there were some relevant archives at the Library of Congress in Washington, which, um, which I got a lot of support from the Close Center uh, for Constitutional Democracy at BC to help finance uh, that trip. I visited Atlanta a bunch of time and times and went to different archives there. And I also conducted about 50 interviews for the book with political figures who were relevant, um, athletes, coaches, media members from this time period. And I think most significantly, I interviewed a lot of fans who had been around in the 60s and 70s for their perceptions of the appeal of these teams, what it was like to actually be there. I mean, it's very easy to read a story and then kind of regurgitate what you see there. But Getting the, the, the texture of the story through lived experience, I think, is very helpful for historians. And certainly it was to me. I mean, when, in, in my dedication for the book, I thank the people of Georgia for being just so broadly um, uh, welcoming to me in terms of sharing their lives with me and sharing their experiences with me. Um, in spite of the book having a title, which could be seen as very negative, um, I, I consider the book, um, I, 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 my aim with the book is to try to tell uh, the story of this time period through the prism of sports 
in as, I guess, uh, complete a manner as I possibly can. I mean, the book was originally 800 pages. It's 500 pages now. They, I, I mean, my editors very understandably chopped a lot of uh, extra stuff out of there. My advisor, Lynn Johnson, also helped me uh, prune a lot of my extra stuff, too. I would go on 25, 30-page digressions on uh, different rabbit holes, so that was, that was helpful, too. But I got very focused on trying to tell the story of a time and place and a group of people in as complex a manner as possible. And hopefully, hopefully the book does that. Was there like one experience or like one interview that was particularly meaningful to you or like super cool? I, a man named Sam Massell, who was the mayor of Atlanta, he died about three weeks ago. He was mayor from 1969 through 1973 and is a major figure in the book. Uh, Sam was incredibly generous with his time with me. We chatted for probably three or four hours one afternoon. Uh, over the phone. He was a man well into his 90s at the time and was incredibly, incredibly giving in terms of his energy, his knowledge uh, and experiences to me and uh, for the book. And I, he's, he's quoted extensively in it and is also one of the, one of the heroic figures in the book. Um, with Atlanta's first stadium, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, the city paid for it entirely with the taxpayers paying for a property tax. So everybody, whether you owned a little home or a big home, you were paying for the new stadium downtown. Sam Massell was a real estate lawyer before he became the mayor of Atlanta. He comes in, says, we're not going to finance it this way anymore. Um, municipal bonds helped pay for what became the Omni Coliseum, which was the home of the Atlanta Hawks basketball team and the Atlanta Flames hockey team. But he required the actual team itself and their corporate management to be the ones who repaid the, uh, the, the loan from the bond when it was, in it, when it was actually paid back. It wasn't the taxpayers. By having somebody so knowledgeable about how real estate law worked, they were able to get a very clean deal in place that kept uh, taxpayer um, taxpayer exposure to a minimum. So I think I think Massel is um, uh, a figure I admire greatly, and I, and I I couldn't be more appreciative of the time he spent with me to uh, uh, give his side of things for the book. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and kind of on the flip side, are, were there any kind of struggles you had in writing the book or like any kind of humps that you had to get over to kind of um, get the get the final product? Oh, I mean, it took me. Let's see. I started my dissertation in 2012 and I my book is coming out and came out in February 22. So it was a decade long uh, odyssey. I mean, it, writing it took about oh, it took. I was the thing is I was working full time teaching first at BC, then I taught at Northeastern for a while, then I taught at a community college in Vermont. So I was bouncing from job to job, working full time, writing it at night. Um, so it, I think just finding the time to do it um, day in day out was 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 uh, the most difficult part of the process. Uh, I think anytime you have a long writing exercise like this, part of the issue is just simply the solitude of it that you're very much by yourself with your thoughts on a topic for a very long time. And for me, having a daily routine of getting an hour, getting 90 minutes in on it each, uh, each day, I, th I think is what really kept me going with, with the process. Um, it, uh, I think simply the time that it, uh, that it took. And I, and I guess I have a tendency, I've been told I have a tendency to both over-research and over-write. Um, so, so getting over that and um, trying to, to, to pick out the uh, proper aspects of, of, of a much larger story I tried to tell. I think was was difficult for me as well. Since it took you so long, how rewarding was it when you actually released it uh, last month? I can't month? tell you. I can't to this day. Holding this thing in my hand, looking at looking at my name on the cover, looking at that stadium, it's just such a thrill for me.
the best the best part of it was um, honestly once the book came out, um, you get you get some complimentary copies, sending them to friends, to family, to many of the instructors I had at BC, thanking them for the role they played in making this possible. It um, uh, and and hearing back from people about how much, how appreciative they were to, to get a copy of the book. Um, really, um, for me, was a very meaningful aspect of this project. Definitely, yeah. Um, and it, it's cool kind of how you kind of started the book process at BC in a, in a way, I guess. Um, how did, oh, like, without BC, question, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, how, how did your BC experience kind of shape that? I know you touched on it a little bit before, but um, was there any kind of turning point maybe in your time there that just kind of, like, prompted you to write the book or, or get deeper into your research? I got to tell you, the day I walked into a, a graduate seminar room at BC, I knew I was in the right place. Uh, it was a relatively small graduate program. I felt very comfortable with my colleagues, uh, made many lifelong friends there, uh, had a great group of instructors to work with, thoroughly enjoyed teaching at BC. I mean, the students are just so intelligent and well-rounded, and it's by far the best teaching experience I've had. Um, I... Uh, I don't know that there was a turning point. I just, I just really ex enjoyed my experience at BC, both as a student, as, as an instructor, and also just uh, living in the area uh, and um, going to Pinos probably about 500 times. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, it, yeah, uh, that, yeah, definitely. that's awesome. Um, just kind of going sidetrack here. I, are you, it's a, I looked online. Are you the Vermont State Chairman of the Society for the American Baseball Research? Is that correct? I am. That's correct. Okay. Yes. Do you want to like talk about that a little bit? Like, what, what, sure. is that, what does that mean? Yeah, the Society for American Baseball Research is the largest, um, well, I guess, research organization for the sport in America. It has like 25,000 members. It combines people who are more interested in the statistical aspect of the game when it's come to be known as analytics as well as people that are more interested in the baseball history angle of it. I'm more a baseball history guy being a historian, but uh, yeah, it's where people share research, um, get to know authors of different, uh, different works. Uh, we meet, um, COVID's been a little weird with that, but we've been meeting primarily through Zoom, um, maybe about once a month. And uh, it's, it's really a place for people interested in baseball history or statistics, even if they don't really want to do in-depth research. It's, it's, it's a place, I guess, to find a sense of commonality with people who have these shared interests and a place to discuss them. And uh, our chapter is a relatively small one. I think we have about, oh, 20 or 25 active members. I, um, I belong, Sabre Boston is a much larger organization, and I was involved with that when I was down there. Um, frankly, the, the Vermont section was, um, was kind of on hiatus when I got back here, and uh, I'd enjoyed being a part of it so much when I was in Boston, I, I, I got it going again. There were some older members who were still around, so I kind of kind of to rebuild it in, in what I had seen in Boston, just seeing such collegiality among all these people who were interested in different aspects of baseball research. Um, Sabre does a lot of things. Uh, I think the most significant thing we're doing right now is we have a, a, uh, a project called the Sabre Biography Project, where we're trying to write a full-length peer-reviewed biography of all 18,000 or so uh, guys who played Major League Baseball. I think we've written like 6,000 right so far. Uh, wow, that, as a that's group. crazy. I've, I've written like 20 of them or so. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting experience. And um, people who are interested in Sabre can go to sabr.org uh, and check out their local chapter. But yeah, if you're interested in the history of baseball or uh, deep analysis of baseball statistics, uh, this is the uh, home for you. 
did those experiences help with the book at all or influence it in any way? Absolutely. I mean, for, for one thing, I, I think um, being able to both talk about the historical side of thing, I, I got that through, through being in graduate school, but being able to, part of the thing is you're writing about sports, you need to write about sports in a way that's appealing to sports fans. I think working with and, and getting a sense of that from some of my Sabre colleagues was helpful, seeing the way they wrote about the history of the game and definitely had an influence on the way I approached those sections of my book. I would say my book is roughly half sports and then half economics, politics, culture, society, you know, all that kind of stuff together. So it, it, it's a mix of the two. And the sports side was certainly influenced, at least the writing of it, by my uh, uh, Sabre colleagues. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and it's, it's cool because, like, uh, especially now, I mean, sports statistics are becoming so much more popular because people are kind of noticing that they're, they're so integral to sports. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely make sure to check that out. But, um, yeah, I guess um, also I think you do some reporting for SB Nation, um, kind of like a sports journalism company. So um, how has your experience been with that so far and um, has it been related to anything else you've done in that way? Oh, SB Nation's fantastic. It's the largest network of sports blogs. It's run by, I think, Vox, you know, like the big media companies who runs it. Uh, they have a blog for every big league team and all four major sports, all the pro soccer teams in Europe. They have them for college sports as well. I read about college football and college basketball primarily. I run the Cincinnati uh, Bearcats website. I have no particular connection to Cincinnati other than that they needed somebody to cover football for them when I joined it. So I've been a part of SB Nation since 2015. It's been kind of a part-time gig for me and uh, also gave me a lot of experience writing about sports too. It, uh, while I was finishing up my dissertation, I started out as being a hobby, but uh, is one of, one, of, one of a number of gigs I have now, and, and it's a lot of fun. Um, I mean, day in, day out, we cover uh, Bearcats football and bas men's and women's basketball and also have a lot of kind of more listical type, you know. You know I think that today I published like top 10 dream backfields in college football history, that, that, kind, of, that kind of stuff. So certainly non-academic type, type writing. But, uh, yeah, and, I, and I've written more broadly about college basketball and college football for them as well over the past – five or six years um yeah it's it's a i mean it doesn't matter what team you cover it's a free venue where you can get really in-depth analysis uh beyond the headlines for all your uh different uh pro sports interests as well as college sports yeah that's really cool um you know just kind of wrapping things up here i have one more question that's been kind of on my mind ever since you started talking about the atlanta and just how it came about because i know t today Las Vegas, I feel like I've seen some similarities with that, with those with Las Vegas trying to get into the sports industry because, you know, they got a hockey team recently. The Raiders just moved there. I think they want a basketball team with the NBA expands. Is that similar in any way to, like, what happened in Atlanta in the 60s? It's like a modern-day example. Oh, without question. Yeah, they're, they're really using the same path to pursue it. I mean, Las Vegas has a higher profile already because it was a major American destination before this. So I think they had a leg up. But they're, they're making public offers of expenditure to lure teams to town. They're going out saying Las Vegas is open for business and ready to bring the big leagues in. It's an alternative to Los Angeles. Also, you know, you, it's going to be cheaper to operate there than it would be in, in, in L.A. for franchises, just as Atlanta was much cheaper than a lot of the northern cities in its time period. So certainly, I mean, I would say they're following the exact same model Atlanta pioneered during the 1960s and 1970s. I'm surprised Las Vegas didn't do this earlier, right? Well, it's, it's the leagues didn't want to be involved with gambling. The, the oh, okay. cultural so it's like the rise of gambling. gambling. Yeah. Oh, without question. Yeah. I mean, the leagues, 
did everything they possibly could to avoid any association with gambling until like 10 years ago, once states started legalizing it. I mean, one thing that's remarkable is if you look at 1970, in 1970, basically any public place you would go to, people smoked in it. But you really couldn't gamble anywhere. Now you can't smoke anywhere, but you can gamble everywhere. So there's been a fairly remarkable yeah. cultural shift in that in that direction too, and that certainly helped Vegas become involved with pro sports. I mean, Vegas's biggest issue was people didn't thought it was associated with the mafia, associated with corruption in sports. People, I mean, the big leagues did everything they possibly could to avoid an association with it, and 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 it was it was always hypocritical. I mean, newspapers always had the lines for NFL games in them. They had guys on and on broadcast talking about what the line in a game is. Who cares about that? The only people who care are the people gambling on the games. I mean, that was true 50 years ago as well. I mean, Vegas was basically the only place with legal sports gambling historically until the uh, relatively recent uh, past. I mean, you could do off offshore stuff with Bovada and places, but uh, not that I know anything about that. But uh, um, Vegas, Vegas was the go-to location um, for, for a long time. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see a connection there. But, um, Colleen, unless – you have anything else you want to talk about about your book i think you know it was great great talking to you oh thank thank you guys for having me on my book is called loserville how professional sports remade atlanta and how atlanta remade professional sports it's available from the university of nebraska press you can find it on amazon barnes and noble and all the other well-known online book retailers i thank you guys so much for having me on it was a great pleasure to be on a, on a bc related program and have uh have, have a continued connection with one of my alma maters yeah, no, definitely. Clayton, thank you so much for joining us. And we hope everyone listening enjoyed this episode. Make sure to check us out next week for next week's episode.